Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody doing all right. Doing good. Let me welcome those of you who are joining us right now from the chapel or the warehouse or uh, maybe one of our off-site campuses uh, or internet, wherever you happen to be. We're glad that you uh, are along too. Hey, let me ask you a question as we start uh, this weekend. How many of you have ever lost something, at least for a season, that because you lost them, it caused you to lose your joy? Anybody? Okay, let's rephrase that. How many of you have ever lost your keys? Okay. All right. Several. What do you do when you lose your keys? Yeah, you blame your spouse, right? Because that's usually what happens on that whole deal. How many of you have lost a phone or a wallet? Anybody ever lost that? How about a purse? How many of you ever lost your car, like at an airport parking lot or something? You have no idea where it has happened to me recently. You can steal your joy. How many of you got into the gluten-free communion bread by accident one week? That, that'll, steal your, that'll steal your joy, okay? So he said, what happened there? Well, it's just the way it is, you know? Um, how many of you have ever <clears throat> lost a sibling? Not died, but just lost them for a little while, and it stole your joy. Anybody? I, I've got a story on that. My brother, Jeff. Anybody remember Jeff? <laughs> Jeff is speaking this weekend at Saddleback Church. We're proud of him. He's doing, doing a great job. But um, when he was younger, he was a pain in the neck. And um, actually, he never was a bad kid. But I was maybe 12 years old. He was probably six. And Dad took the family to um, a, a rodeo in Colorado. We did those kind of things. And... I think the rodeo was in, in, in Wyoming, maybe, and it was a great rodeo, and a lot of stuff happened, and it was a lot of fun. And at just the exciting part of the rodeo, uh, Jeff decided he needed to go to the bathroom. And, of course, Dad wasn't going to take him, and so Dad assigned me to take Jeff to the bathroom. And all, all he told me, like last instructions, was be sure to bring him back. Keep your eye on him. Yeah. So we went into the bathroom, a lot of people in the bathroom, and I kind of tucked him in there, and then I went to peek out the door to see if I could see. Came back, he wasn't there. Uh, Short search, couldn't find him. So I came back and sat down with the family to watch the rodeo. And pretty, pretty soon my mother looks over and she says, where's Jeff? I said, you know, I really don't know. I, you know, I, he was there, then he's not. So what do we do? Everybody gets up. You know, I mean, it's just so rodeo's over. We all get up. You know, dad thumps me on the head. We go, we find <clears throat> Jeff and, uh, and bring him back. And can I tell you, that the loss of my sibling caused me to, uh, to lose a little bit of joy at the time. My dad and I had some intense fellowship. Well, in today's passage, Paul is afraid that something will happen to cause the Philippian church to lose their joy. And we're going to talk about it. We're in a series, in case you're just joining us, uh, called The DNA of Joy. And we're studying verse by verse through the book of Philippians. And it's great going verse by verse. Last week, we talked about what um, uh, never complaining. It was so much fun. Some of you thought it was the best message I'd ever done. There were several of you that I saw during the week that, uh, you know, it was so much fun just to listen to, you know, and, well, I'm doing pretty good and a lot better than my spouse, that type thing, on not complaining. And can you believe it that this is the week that my wife insists that we do two things on the weekend, that we clean out my side of the closet and then we get all of our stuff ready for taxes. 
Now, how, how do you do that without complaining, you know? But we did. Uh, uh, she did. I complained just a little bit. Very, very practical last week. Now, I'm going to tell you, this week's not going to be as practical. Uh, it, when you go verse by verse through the Bible, the good news is you get to get all of the stuff. It's not just cherry-picking the low-hanging fruit. You get the good stuff, and this week is really good stuff. It's more doctrinal than it is practical. There's going to be some practical outcomes out of it, but I want you to hang with the doctrine because the doctrine is very, very important, especially as it relates to how we keep our joy in, uh, in difficult circumstances. In fact, let's take a look at the first verse, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1. And why don't you read that out loud with me, if you would. You've got it on the outline sheet, or maybe you can see it on a screen. Or if you have a Bible, you can follow along also. We're looking at the New Living Translation here. Um, verse 1 says this, Whatever happens, let's read it together. Whatever happens, dear brothers and sisters, may the Lord give you joy. I never get tired of telling you this. I am doing this for your own good. Can you circle whatever happens? He says, whatever happens, may the Lord give you joy. Would you agree that there are a lot of things that can happen in life that can take your joy or can steal your joy? Relationships. We talked about that in the second week. Real killjoy sometimes. Relationships, when the relationships aren't going well, it can steal your joy. That's a whatever. Uh, when circumstances turn out bad, it can steal your joy. When you have a loss, and maybe it's not just losing your brother at a rodeo, but maybe it's a significant, serious loss in your life, it can steal your joy. When God doesn't make sense. Have you ever had times in your life where you go, God, where are you? This just doesn't make sense. It can steal your, your joy. There are just a lot of whatevers. And Paul says, whatever happens, whatever happens, don't let it steal your joy. First week of our series, we talked about the difference between happiness and joy. That happiness depends on happenings. Happenings can be good, you're happy. Happenings can be bad, you're not happy. That's just normal. But joy doesn't be, depend on happenings. Joy depends on truth. We don't put our faith in the facts. We put our faith in the truth. And so today, I want to talk about that just a little bit. Three things, three truths that will help you keep your joy when things happen, when life happens. And we're going to study first, uh, or Philippians 3, verses about 1 through through 11. And so here, here we go. Let's dive in. What's the first truth when something happens that could steal your joy that you don't understand? What do you do? First truth is God is good all the time. God is good all the time. Let's say that together. God is good all the time. Just a basic foundational truth. It's a basic theological truth, but it's the foundation for joy. When something happens that you don't understand, Here's your first question. Where's God in all of this? Where is God in all of this? You need to remember these verses. Psalm 11 and verse 7 says, The Lord always does what is right. The Lord always does what is right. Not sometimes. Not when I think that He does. But the facts are, God always does what is right. Daniel 9 and verse 14 says, our God is just in everything that He does. He's just. See, God is, 
is just. God is sinless. God is right. God is good. God is holy. God is merciful. God is perfect. And when He doesn't seem to be that, when we see God as anything less than just and good and merciful and perfect, then there's something wrong with the picture that we're seeing. We have a bad picture of God. One writer said, some people have a picture of God as a high school principal in a gray suit who never remembered your name but's always leafing unhappily through your files. Do you remember that guy? And if that's your picture of God, then you need to get a new picture. That's not who God is. God is merciful. God is full of joy. God is, God is just. You need to update the picture. Have you ever read something in the Bible? Especially if you're tracking through like a chronological study or you know a study of the Old Testament, New Testament, whatever. You're doing a one-year reading. And maybe you'd never read some of the stuff that went on in the Old Testament. And you read, you, you read something and you go, how can a merciful God do that? I mean, what, what's up with that? And it doesn't connect with you. Or you read something in the New Testament like I did. Just a few weeks ago, I was reading in John chapter 8 where um, the Pharisees bring this woman who was caught in adultery. Remember that story? And throws her down before Jesus. And they got some rocks and they say, what should we do? They knew what they were going to do, and they didn't even care about what Jesus had to say about that situation. They wanted to trap him. You know, it was, it was a trick question. What should they do? She'd been caught in adultery. And so, you know, the first thing I thought is, uh, isn't public stoning a little harsh for someone committing adultery? I mean, they estimate these days that 60% of men and 40% of married women have had an affair. And if, and if stoning was practiced today, I'm not sure there'd be enough rocks to get the job done. Do you agree with that? It would probably make you think twice, I would imagine. But what kind of God would establish this kind of law? Where if someone commits adultery, that they're stoned to death. What kind of God would do that? Can I love and trust a God like that? Now, have you ever had questions about God like that? Have you? I mean, you read, read something. Or I'm, I'm the only one that's honest in this place. You read something or something happens and you go, wow, you know. I just don't know if I can trust God. I know they say God is love, but what, what's up with that? And then you almost feel guilty thinking the thoughts that you're thinking, especially if you've been in church for a long time. Well, that's one of those whatever happens circumstances that Paul's talking about. When, you que- when something happens, you read something or something literally happens and you question God. And what it does, it gets you to, to doubt God and it steals the sense of joy that the Holy Spirit has planted in your heart. What do you do when that happens? You remember the first point. God is good all the time. How does that help? Because um, you, you, instead of assuming that God is wrong on this thing, you doubt your doubts. In fact, that's the first thing you need to do when you have doubt. We all have doubts from time to time. And rather than believing your doubts, you doubt your doubts. And so you do a little homework on it. I did a little homework on the death penalty for adultery and found that God established the law so that everybody would get a fair shake. The reason for the law is so that unjust people wouldn't get ahead. It's so that powerful people wouldn't take advantage of less powerful people. That's one of the things I love about living in America. I'm hoping today, I'm praying that Egypt gets a leader 
in a system that um, operates under the rule of law, the real rule of law, so that people can have freedom. I don't know what's going to happen, and I don't know whether it's politically correct to say that or not. But that's what I'm praying for, because God established law so that the, the powerful, the rich, could not take advantage of the less powerful and the poor. That's what the law is all about. He hates people taking advantage of others. There are some pretty severe penalties from time to time in the law, and adultery is one of those situations. And while the law seems harsh, absolute justice, the burden of proof was huge. In fact, in this situation, you had to have two legally proper witnesses had to have been there. They had to have actually... That's why in the situation with the woman caught in adultery, it was a setup. They set her up. They were trying to set Jesus up. They had people there watching the whole thing because they knew that in order to legally do what they were doing, two legal witnesses had to have seen what was going on. And then the person had to have been warned in advance that what they were about to do would be punishable by death. And then there's this elaborate set of rules about examining witnesses. In fact, our whole legal system is based on the, uh, the, the Judeo system of law, uh, just the, 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 the legal aspects of it. The bottom line is that almost, in reality, almost no one was executed uh, for the crime of adultery. God's law protected society. It went overboard to protect the rights of the accused. And so that's the homework that I did. And when I did, I, I understood a little bit better. God is good. All the time. So when you have questions, when something happens that would steal your joy, do the homework. Don't just, you know, default or jump to, well, God must be bad. If God really was good, He wouldn't. No, 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 no. Don't just jump to conclusions. That's what Eve did in the garden. You remember in the garden of Eden, Eve was tempted by the devil. What did the devil tempt her with? Well, if God was really good, He'd let you eat of this tree. If God, see, God knows you'll become just like Him. If He questioned the integrity of God and if God was good. And so rather than doing her homework, Eve didn't do her homework, she jumped to a conclusion that God wasn't good and it impacted her future. And when you do that, when you jump to conclusions rather than doing homework, it will impact your future and you will lose the joy of the Holy Spirit that God has for you. So when in doubt, remember, God is good all the time. Here's the second truth. We are not good most of the time. Would you agree with that? We are not good most of the time. This is very important because what we're going to get into here, what Paul gets into is legalism. Legalism. I'm going to talk to you in depth for a few minutes about what legalism is and how it steals your joy. And what you need to know is in order to avoid legalism is that you just need to admit up front, I am not good most of the time. I am not good most of the time. Because if you don't admit that, you're going to get the system upside down and you're going to be making a bunch of rules or submitting to a bunch of rules that steal your joy in trying to relate to God. We are not good most of the time. Would you agree that the most innocent among us are babies? How many of you would agree with that? All right. Um, You guys know we have a lot of babies as grandchildren. We have um, nine of them and the oldest one's three and a half. Okay. We made a slight mistake in judgment. We invited all nine grandchildren over to watch the Super Bowl. Okay. <laughs> Not wise at all. I was very interested in the game, just as a game. Didn't really care that much about who won. My teams never go to the championships, but, you know, it was great. You know, it, 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 good, good matchup and all this. I probably literally never watched 
last night I said, you know, 60 seconds. It's probably more than that. I probably never, never literally watched more than a three-minute segment of that game. Did not get involved in any of the stuff. Didn't even get to see many of the commercials because of the chaos <laughs> that was our house. You had nine little ones. Now, in observing the little ones, you got a clear kind of picture of human nature. They are cute on the outside, but they have sinful little hearts. <laughs> Left to their own devices, they would run around. They would, you watch them. One of them would go up and scratch another one and then run, you know. They would, um, they would hoard the good stuff for themselves. They, they aren't about sharing. We had little, I don't know, Cheerio things or something like that. And Debbie would give them, and she gave one of them a cup to go share with her friends, which just was not a good idea with her cousins. Because as soon as she got a cup full, she'd go hoard them, feeling as if there was no more supply, so she had to hold on to what she has. Do you know any adults like that? And so we had to give little cups to everybody, and then they're stealing from one another's cups. They're sinful hearts. They willfully, I watched them willfully disobey their parents. The only ones that were not having conflict that night were the two newborns, and that's because they were sleeping. <laughs> the most innocent among us had sinful little hearts. Where did it start going wrong for my little grandchildren? Psalm 51.5 says, For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. It happens pretty quick. And it happened pretty quick for you, too. Here's the short story. God is good. How much? Yes, He's righteous and we were created in His image to be righteous too, to be good all the time. And then Adam sinned. And when Adam sinned, He passed His sin nature down to each one of us and we start doing bad things shortly after we're born. We all want to do better. We all know that that's not how it should be. That's why at the beginning of every year we make New Year's resolutions that we're not going to cuss as much, we're going to eat less, we're going to drink less, all of those things because we want to be better than we are. But out of our sin nature comes sinful lives. It's the result of who we are at our core. Romans 3.23 says it like this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Have you ever heard the phrase, get your bad self over here? <laughs> Say that with me. Get your bad self over here. Do you know what that phrase is probably as theologically a correct thing as I'm going to say today? Because you are a bad self. You have been lied to, however. You have been told that you are inherently good. That you were born morally neutral. That you're a blank slate of goodness. You just need to do good things. And you're going to be good. Get the secret. Do whatever. You, you know, you're, you're okay. But the truth is, you're a bad person. You can only do bad things. And the person next to you agrees with my theology on this. Nobody on earth is righteous. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are opposite of God in every way. And here's the worst kind of people right here. The worst kind of the kind that Paul's going to talk about. You wondered when I was going to get back to Philippians. Paul's going to talk about in the next section. And that's people who are bad and think they're good. And the reason that's the worst kind is because... They're in this whole system of moralism and legalism and they get you bound to the same deal. Let's, let's talk about it. 
Philippians 3 and verse 2. It says, Paul says, watch out for those dogs. He's not saying dogs in a good way. If I would have written this, I would have said, watch out for those cats. (laughs) Save your notes. It's okay. Watch out for those dogs, those wicked men and their evil deeds, those mutilators who say to you, you must be circumcised to be saved. Pretty strong stuff. Would you agree from a loving Paul who says, love everybody, love God. These guys are dogs. Who are the guys? They're Judaizers. Judaizers. What they were is um, they're they're Christians. They are converted Pharisees. Pharisees were the legalists, the keepers of the law. Some of them were good, but most of them were hypocritical in their whole keeping of the law. And some of them believed in Jesus and they got saved, but they brought their, their legalistic stuff they're, they're trying to impress God with how good they are. They brought that into the church. And they're teaching that you've got to be Jewish before you can become a Christian. There's a whole deal on them in, in uh, Acts chapter 15. Just to kind of, we taught that when we taught through Acts where the church, you know, nearly split over this whole issue. And uh, Paul's confronting them. And he says, don't let them sway you. And he goes on, he says, for we who worship God in the Spirit are the only ones who are truly circumcised. We put no confidence, circle no confidence, in human error or human effort. Instead, we boast about what Christ Jesus has done for us. He says, we put no confidence in human effort. The only thing we boast about is what Jesus has done for us. See, here's the deal. We were made, we were created by God to be righteous, to be in right standing with Him, to be holy. We were created to do that, but that fell in the fall. We long to be righteous and it doesn't sit well with us that we're not. So here's what we do, especially as we get more religious. We pursue our own righteousness. And the Bible calls that the sin of self-righteousness. Say self-righteousness together. Self-righteousness. It's a sin. We pursue it. The the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had perfected the art of self-righteousness. They knew that they were sinners deep down inside. But on the outside, man, they did it all right. So people would look at them and say, wow, they must really be righteous. They were self-righteous. Righteous. They weren't righteous in a way that God wanted them to be righteous. And a lot of Christians these days don't feel righteous. And so a lot of people feel like being a Christian is about being a good moral person. Romans 10 and verse 3 says, Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. That's called morality. That's not called Christianity. It comes from a misconception. Here's the misconception. The misconception is that God hates bad people and God loves good people. And so if you'll be a good person, then God will love you. So you try to become a good moral person. Try to do everything right. But here's the truth. Somebody said you can buckle up, recycle, drive hybrid cars and eat organic and still go to hell. Okay? Because it's not about what you do. Because you are bad most of the time. There's not a lot you can do about that. Paul Paul has no confidence in human effort. In fact, 
to prove his point that it's not about human effort, he gives us his resume in verse 4 through 6. He says, yet I could have confidence myself if anybody could. If others have reason for confidence in their own effort, I have even more. He said, for I was circumcised when I was eight days old, having been born into a pure-blooded Jewish family that is a branch of the tribe of Benjamin. Good stuff. So I'm a real Jew if there ever was one. What's more, I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. And zealous? Yeah. In fact, I harshly persecuted the church and I obeyed the Jewish law so carefully that I was never accused of any fault. Paul says, you want a good resume? I got a good resume. If anybody could depend on human effort for righteousness and right standing with God, I could. Then in verse 7, I once thought all these things were so very important, but now I consider them worthless because of what Jesus has done for me. See, here's here's a couple of problems with self-righteousness and depending on morality. Number one, if you achieve any semblance of morality or righteousness, you become pretty much of a jerk. Have you ever seen anybody like that? They feel like they've made it. They're, 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 you, you just walk into a room and, and they just kind of act like they're a couple of classes ahead of you, a couple of steps ahead of you because of what they've achieved, what they've done. In a, in a church, it's like spiritual stuff. You know, they're the really pious ones and they have this pious outlook and all this kind of stuff. And it's, it's, it's an outward thing. And you look down on everybody else, your sin is pride. And all that gets you is cuts in line to hell. You know, I mean, it, that, that's all, all it gets you. Because it's the same sin that's, that got Satan kicked out of heaven. It's pride. You don't cuss, you don't sm- smoke, you don't drink, and you look down on everyone else who does. Now, I'm not saying, you know, go cuss, drink, and smoke, and all that kind of, No, but that's not your road to righteousness. If it is, it becomes real legalistic. So... On one end, you know, you kind of get to looking down at everybody else. On the other end, some know that they aren't moral and they can't do it. So they get totally depressed at trying. They never think they're, they're going to make it. You just want to, you know, why, why, uh, why bother? Either way, you lose your joy. Legalism, morality, kills your joy. We, we pick the dumbest things to be legalistic about. It's whatever we're good at and somebody else isn't. You know what I mean? You know, it's, it's whatever you don't have a problem with, but everybody else does. You look down your nose at them and you feel superior. That's a pride thing. It has no place in the body of Christ. Jesus dealt with it in Matthew 5 and verse 20. He, he's teaching, he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of all the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. He's teaching a group of people and he knows that they despise the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And these are guys, you know, that they're real proud of their resumes. And he says, unless you do even better than them, unless your righteousness surpasses them, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Imagine how discouraging that was to most of the crowds, the, the drunkards, the adulterers, the cheats. It would be like saying today, you've got to be better than Mother Teresa and Billy Graham and maybe even Greg Surratt in order... <laughs> in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Go, I can't do that. 
And some of you have tried morality and religion and it doesn't work. There's no joy there. Legalism only breeds discouragement or pride. Okay? So what do you do? What do you do? That's the third thing. Knowing Jesus changes everything. Knowing Jesus. God is good all the time. I am not good most of the time. And knowing Jesus changes everything. Look what Paul says to the Philippians. Verse 8. Yes, everything else is worthless compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. Circle that word garbage. So that I may have Christ and become one with Him. He says, you know what? Everything I've done, all my resume, all my attempts at self-righteousness are worth nothing. I don't care about it. I don't care about human effort at all. In fact, let me tell you how worthless it is. It's like garbage. The word garbage is translated in, in most translations as rubbish. And it's translated rubbish because when they started translating the Bible, they, they didn't feel good about translating what the word really was. You know what the word really is? Human waste. Paul drops the S-bomb right here. I'm serious. Because he wants to make a point. He wants to say, all your stuff, all my stuff is worth nothing compared to knowing Christ. In fact, he says, I no longer count on my own goodness. Or my ability to obey God's law. But I trust Jesus Christ to save me. For God's way of making us right with Himself depends on faith. So what happened to Paul? Paul in all of his own self-righteousness, he's doing all this good stuff, and now he's persecuting Christians. And all of a sudden he gets knocked to the ground. In Acts chapter 9. He has a confrontation with God, with Jesus Christ Himself. And in that confrontation, he immediately sees that his own attempts at goodness are never going to get him anywhere. And by faith, he accepts Jesus Christ's death on the cross in his place. He received the gift of faith and he exercised faith to trust Jesus for salvation that came through the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. So Jesus becomes our substitute. His righteousness for our unrighteousness. I can't save myself. You say, well, you're preaching to mostly Christians here. Yeah, but Christians continue to try to save themselves. We, we don't get it. And so we, we, we don't feel righteous. So we work, 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 work. And we don't receive the grace which brings joy. Everything that was lost in Adam was regained in Jesus Christ. And God offers us righteousness as a gift. It is a gift of grace. I can't pay for it. I can't work for it. I just receive it and accept it. So how do I go from self-righteousness, which is offensive to God, to the righteousness of Jesus, which is a gift of God? What do I need to do? Nothing. Nothing. Trust Jesus. Just trust. He does the work. It's received by faith. It's not about you. Habakkuk 2.4 says the righteous will live by faith. The pressure is off. You just trust Jesus. Romans 3 and verse 21 says, But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the, fair, or the prophets testify. 
This righteousness comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Circle the word all there. You say, Greg, I've done some bad things in my life. A lot of people have done bad things. It's by faith. Trust God. It's all who believe. See, if, if I asked you, are you righteous right now? If I just asked this crowd right now, are you righteous? What would your answer be? How do you respond? Modest Christians would normally say, no, I, you know, I'm not righteous. I know all my own stuff. Maybe newbies in the church that maybe haven't become Christian yet, they'd pull out their resume. <laughs> like, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not that bad. I've done this. I suppose I'd be kind of righteous. But both of you would be wrong. Because the right answer for a Christian, if asked, are you righteous, is yes. It's not my own righteousness. It's Jesus. I didn't do anything to, to deserve it. It's God's grace. At some point in my life, I said, I trust Jesus Christ. I'm not going to trust in my own goodness and my own work. And His righteousness became my righteousness. And I am so grateful for that. And that's why I serve Him. And that's why I love Him. And that's why I try to live a life that pleases Him. Not because I know He'll love me more if I do, because He won't. But because it's my acceptable sacrifice to Him. And those who would say, I am righteous, and they don't know Jesus, they're wrong. Because our own righteousness is not the righteousness of God. In fact, God says our righteousness in Isaiah is as filthy rags. Our best attempts at being good don't impress God. Now, some people say Christianity is the easiest religion in the world. You just trust Jesus. But you know what? Honestly, the opposite is true. Because other religions teach you how to be righteous. That's what it's all about. You do this, 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 and this, and you can be righteous. And Christianity says, you know what? You can't save yourself. And your only hope is Jesus Christ. So my message today is don't lose your joy. Don't lose your joy because something happens and you don't see God in it. Instead, let God be God. You do the homework and understand that God is good all the time. And don't lose your joy by thinking more or less than you ought to about yourself. See, you're not good all of the time. But that's okay because Jesus came. And when you trust Him for salvation, His righteousness becomes your righteousness. So I want to close with two truths. Number one, you need to be a Christian to receive God's righteousness. How do you become a Christian? You just give your sin to Jesus. doesn't have to be profound. You say, well, I don't know the right words to say. doesn't matter. doesn't matter. You just come to Him and you say, here's my sin, and you trade it in for His righteousness. Just admit to that. And when you do, God will fill you with a sense of His joy. Second truth is, if you're a believer, you need to grow in grace every day. Look at the end of the chapter or the verses we're reading, verses 10 through 11. It says, as a result, I can really know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I can learn, circle the word learn. I can learn what it means to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that somehow I can experience the resurrection from the life. Uh, from his life. See, I can learn. How do you learn to grow in grace? I'll give you three quick ideas. 
If you're a believer, here's how you grow in grace. Number one, you apply God's word to your life. That's why you need to be reading God's word every day. Maybe some of you started off at the beginning of the year and uh, you're going to read God's word every day and got, got, got off track. Here's what I want to tell you. Get on track. God doesn't love you any more or any less, you know, whether you do it every day or not. But for you, as you apply God's word, you grow in grace. You grow in grace. You, you, you have more joy. You grow to be more like Jesus. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. So you apply God's Word. Second thing you, you do to grow in grace is you grow in grace with confession and repentance. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's why we have crosses at every campus where we're at. Because at the end of the service, we always give you time to respond. And many of you bravely go to the cross and you confess of sin. Should you be doing that every day? Yes, absolutely. This is kind of a safety net. Because you're going to sin. You don't want to, but you say things that, you know, that, that distance you from God, distance you from other people. You act in ways that distance you from God and other people. And as you learn to confess your sin... You repent of your sin and confess your sin. You grow in righteousness. You grow to be more and more like Jesus. Just admit it. The third thing is the way you grow is by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't do it by yourself. He says, I can really know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised Him from the dead. And so during our response time today, I want you just to pray and say, God, fill me again. Fill me every day. Fill me right now with your Holy Spirit. I want to experience your power. And as I experience your power and I confess my sin and I apply God's word, I will grow in grace. I will grow in love. I will grow in joy. Don't let anything steal your joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for your goodness. God, thank you for the richness of your word, for the truth, the timeless truth that's there. And God, for some of us today, um, we're going to recognize and realize that you're good all the time. And there may be something in our own life and something in our own experience right now that we're questioning your goodness. God, I just pray that during this time of reflection that we would come to a realization of the truth that you're good all the time. And God, others of us need to respond and reflect on the truth that we are not good most of the time. Some of us have never come to a just a real kind of self-exposure of that and come to receive Jesus' righteousness. And God, I pray that that happens today. God, some of us uh, have been trapped by legalism or maybe somebody around us is trying to trap us in this whole legalistic deal. God, I just pray that you would bring freedom and joy as we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.